Good morning, everybody. Julia just handed me the Bible and said, read this. So here we go. Let's find out what I'm reading. You know, she put a star next to it. Come, everyone, clap your hands. There you go. All right, now here's, a, here's more of a challenge. Shout to God with joyful praise. It's working out really well, Julia. <laughs> For the Lord Most High is awesome. He is the great king of all the earth. His, he subdues the nations before us, putting our enemies beneath our feet. He chose the promised land as our inheritance, the proud possession of Jacob's descendants, whom he loves. God has ascended with a mighty shout. The Lord has ascended with trumpets blaring. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises. Our God is the King over all the earth. Praise Him with a psalm. God reigns above the nations, sitting on His holy throne. The rulers of the world have gathered together with the people of the of the God of Abraham. For all the kings of the earth belong to God. He is highly honored everywhere. Okay, good morning, everyone. All right, if you're new, we are so glad that you're here. Um, we actually have a table for you in the back with a registration card so we can say, hey, know that you're alive, because we love that. And there's a little gift for you back there. Um, Social media check-ins, if you hash post with the hashtag RegenGives, we actually have a donation going to our very own Candace Cooper, who is going to Thailand uh, very soon in the spring. It is. I, I got you, Pastor. It's okay. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> All right. <laughs> Lay hands. It's fine. Okay. Um, next one. <laughs> we have Student Circle. Um, that's all youth grades 6 through 12. We are starting off, like kicking off a new season with our youth circle with um, an event Extreme Air today. And that's actually being moved to 4 in all of the reconnects, all the things. It was at 6. It's being at 4 in Niles, and we're going to have a blast trampolining all afternoon long. And that's actually going to start off a new study that we're doing. In call, it's called Youth Alpha. And it's really a foundational study where we ask like basic questions about our faith to really equip ourselves for the rest of our lives as youth. Um, next, it is Re Regen Rangers' fifth Sunday. So it's the fifth Sunday of the month, if you didn't know. April 1st to is tomorrow. And this week, all the kids, all Regen Rangers are staying up here, except for our nursery, our very littles. And back there on the table, there are two worksheets. Um, one is a questionnaire for older kids, and one is a coloring page. Um, if kids fill out the questionnaire and bring it back to Miss Kayla next week, there is an awesome prize. Um, but yeah. And that's just fifth Sunday for our Regen Rangers. We're awesome disciples in training back there. And I would love for the kids to come up and see disciples in action up here. Um, and this is also going to make the transition as they get older. Um, instead of just like, now you're done with kids class, now you're up here. They're going to be able to um, be more comfortable with coming into this room and worshiping and being with all of you guys as they see their leaders and parents um, act in worship too. So with that wonderful set of announcements, um, we're going to start off our offering. And I don't know where the buckets are. Just hold out your hands. It's fine. <laughs> it's 
Jairus and Josh, they got it. The bannings are in action, so that's a good sign. All right, <laughs> so let's just pray for worship, for offering. <laughs> Dear God, thank you so much that we can gather together today um, as believers in your house. I thank you for the gift of giving that we can give back to you, all that you've given to us. Um, amen. That is an old song uh, that your people have been singing to you for a long time. And so, Jesus, we join with the millions of your people across history to confess that you satisfy. To confess that we have gone uh, digging in and searching for wells that do not satisfy, but that you satisfy. And for that, we're so thankful. And so we turn our attention to you this morning uh, to give you our affection, to give you our presence. And so we pray that you would gather us to be with you as you are with each of us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Uh, my name is Kyle, so welcome. I get to be one of the pastors here. And we are in a pretty cool series called When in Doubt. And I don't doubt that it's been a good series. <laughs> Dad joke for you. Boo. Yep. Um, just real quick, Easter is coming. Easter falls on a Sunday this year. Don't know if you know that. Um, and so I wanted to make sure we're all on the same page about where we're going. So Palm Sunday is the Sunday before Easter. It is the Sunday when we remember Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And uh, the star of the show that day will be Rodeo the Donkey. Rodeo the Mini Donkey, I'm not kidding. If, if you've ever watched Parks and Rec and seen people freak out about little Sebastian, you have a taste of what it's like to be here on Palm Sunday when Rodeo is in the house. So uh, I am, Steph and I looked at each other this week, we were like, we get to take pictures of Jack with Rodeo. So that's, that's that Sunday. And then uh, that begins Holy Week. We have a gathering on Good Friday, which is the Friday before Easter at 7 p.m. Always one of my favorite gatherings that we do all year. Um, that and our Christmas candlelight kind of top the charts for me, and then Easter Sunday at 11.15. So we'll be doing all that stuff, and we will have invitations for you to offer to your friends. So please uh, start thinking about who you can be bringing along with you. We want to pack it in here, um, and hopefully it'll be just as packed in as Christmas candlelight was, um, but I don't know how we'll do that. So we'll figure that out and get back to you. All right, we're going to be in the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk, which is an Old Testament prophet. His book is sandwiched in between Nahum, Nahum and Zephaniah. This is why your Bible has a table of contents, my friend. Uh, Habakkuk, H-A-B-K-K-U-K. I hear a lot of biblical names. I've met a lot of Daniels. I've met a lot of James. I've met a lot of Sophias. I've met a lot of Esthers. Not met a lot of Habakkuks. Don't know why. Uh, Frederick Buechner, we've been thinking about this quote, he tells us that there are two kinds of doubt. There's the doubt of the head and there's the doubt of the stomach. Now, the doubt of the head is what happens when we're faced with big, heady, intellectual questions about our faith. And doubt of the stomach is when those big, heady questions turn personal, turn personal. 
and we begin to wrestle with the character of God in the midst of suffering. Now, sometimes the doubt of the head and the doubt of the stomach meet. Sometimes the doubt of the head and the doubt of the stomach meet when we are faced with a big intellectual question that has huge emotional ramifications. And and that happens when we begin to ask questions like, how can a good and loving God allow evil to exist? How can a good and loving God allow evil to exist? You've asked that question. You've been asked that question. It's the only question we have after a significant tragedy. A common strategy for church growth in the 90s and 2000s was this idea that, like, hey, people join church after a transition. So when they're transitioning into a new job or transitioning into a city, a new city, if they're transitioning out of a job, if they've lost a loved one, if they're having a divorce, those are the times when people would come to church. That's not really true anymore because why would we want to draw near a God who was absent in the midst of one of life's greatest difficulties? A high school classmate of mine, and those of you that went to Lakeview, ours, just lost a grade school age son with complications due to leukemia. Why would I want to reach out for something bigger and beyond when, when we really needed God, he wasn't there? The United Kingdom uh, is one of the most secular societies on the planet. Uh, and I don't use secular in a bad way. I just say non-religious. And that's in large part, by the way, this is really well documented in the Netflix show called The Midwife, by the way. Uh, and, and, and what you have is this nation over whom was a monarch who was the head of the state and head of the church, this Christian nation uh, whose God was not there during the London Blitz, whose God was not de- there during the horrors of World War II. One of the fundamental questions at the center of British life is how can a good and loving God allow evil to exist? And the United States, uh, similar trends are afoot. Um, after September 11th, uh, churches were packed full the Sunday after September 11th. But in the tragedies that have happened since, there's almost too many to count. But take Sandy Hook, uh, for example. In the aftermath of a tragedy like Sandy Hook or Parkland, churches were not similarly full. 18 years ago, we were more interested in reaching toward the bigger and the beyond to help us understand what was happening, but not now, because every pitch we have ever thrown at God, it feels like he misses. And so we are faced with the question, how can an all-loving, how can an all-powerful God allow evil to exist? And this question is called theodicy. Theodicy is the word for that. It is a question that has had theologians searching the pages of Scripture to find a good answer for centuries. And thousands of pages have been written, millions of talks have been given, and never once have we found a satisfying or solid answer to this question. Never once. At least none of the answers that we found are cute and memorable and fit well in Twitter or on a t-shirt. And I think that's important. I think that's intentional on God's part. Because I think we falsely assume that if we had a clear and satisfactory answer 
to any of our questions about God that he would be easier to comprehend or easier to understand, and he wouldn't be. He wouldn't be. And so instead, what we're left with is the Bible, which is not a textbook. Nowhere in the pages of Scripture, nowhere in the pages of Scripture, will you see an answer. God allows evil and suffering to exist in the world because. Bible's not a textbook. In fact, when you're reading the Bible, it feels a lot like reading somebody else's mail, and that's because it is. The Bible is written in a historic, in a specific moment to a specific people to address specific concerns. And this overall arc of Scripture tells one story about Jesus. We're never going to find a satisfactory answer. We're never going to find a biblical answer is probably the better way to say it. We're never going to find a biblical answer until we internalize the nature and story of Scripture inside of ourselves like an actor internalizes her script. That's what the Bible calls us to do. It's only when we place ourselves in the story of Scripture and see its overarching story that points to Jesus. And again, if you need to understand this part of the Bible, you need to buy the children's book called The Biggest Story. Okay? It, point, it tells very quickly the whole story of Scripture. It's only when we root ourselves in this whole story that we begin to pick up on the ways that the Bible answers the question of theodicy. I was also thinking this was a really good Sunday to have kids in here because I'm like talking like, graduate-level systematic theology. So good job, kids. Um, What did the pastor talk about? I don't know. Same. So the Bible attempts to answer these questions of theodicy. How can an all-powerful and all-loving God allow evil to exist? But it doesn't do it in the ways that we think it would do it. it. It roots the answers in story. And so, for example, the Bible does tell us that this world is not the way it's supposed to be. That Adam and Eve, real historical people at some time in a real historical past, disobeyed God in such a way that it fractured the very nature of the world. The world is not the way it's supposed to be. Suffering and sorrow and sadness and sickness, these are a part of a world that is not the way that God intended it. And and in Scripture, it talks about how even though this is how it was from the beginning, God has launched a rescue mission to make all things new and to restore the world to the way he wanted it to be. That is a true answer. I don't find it tremendously satisfactory because why am I suffering because a couple of people way back then did something and why and, and something being fixed way later in the future doesn't help me now. But that's one of the ways the Bible talks about theodicy. Another way that the Bible talks about theodicy is to talk about how God's character is righteous, how God's character is just, how he is a righteous judge who does not let the guilty go unpunished. Now, the Psalms, the prayer book of the Bible that we looked very closely at last week, the Psalms often celebrate this fact. We're right now um, reading the Psalms together as a family. Um, in, as Steph is giving Jack his last feeding, we're reading the Psalms out loud together. So I'm reading Psalms out loud over my family. And one of the things you find a lot in the Psalms is Psalms celebrating that God has triumphed over the wicked, that God rescued us in our, in our need, that God took our foes and squashed them. But there's a lot of Psalms that also seem to wrestle with the fact that God hasn't done that, that God hasn't done that, but that express trust that one day the righteous judge will put all things to rights. And that's what the New Testament picks up on. The New Testament picks up on this idea that one day Jesus will gather before himself all of humanity and, and level judgment for each one of us. I thought Jesus was a hippie who voted liberal and was nice to everybody. He is, but he also has some things to say, right? And he also wants to divide the wicked from the righteous like wheat and chaff. 
super interesting. One of the other ways the Bible talks about theodicy is in the story of a man named Job who has a whole book devoted to himself. Job loses everything in what you find out was with the permission and foreknowledge of God. In this essence, it's not hard to read the book of Job and see that God causes, to some degree or another, Job's suffering. And so for 30 chapters, three of Job's friends argue with Job, trying to help him see that he must have done something wrong to get God to punish him this way. In the end, Job goes to God, has a wrestling match with him and some really beautiful poetry. And then you find Job embracing more deeply God's character, trusting him more. But nowhere in the book of Job does it say, this is how God allows evil and suffering in the world while being evil, while being all-loving and all-powerful. It doesn't do that. We have to root ourselves in this story to begin to find our way around the edges of this question. And somehow, as we embed ourselves in the narrative of Scripture and as we walk with God, we begin to walk with Jesus in a more deeply authentic way while also living with this question. A lot of faith is just living with the questions. And that's what we're going to see as the Bible tries to answer the question of theodicy in the book of Habakkuk. So a few weeks ago, I made a joke that we're going to preach through the book of First and Second Samuel for like two years, and people laughed. And you silly, cute people, you're just new to Regen and know, don't know that I do that yet. So to balance it out, we're going to preach through two books in two years. Um, we're going to preach one book in one sermon. Does that sound like a fair deal? So we're going to preach the book of Habakkuk right now. So go with me to the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk is an Old Testament prophet. Now, most of the prophets in the Old Testament, their job was to act as line judges and referees for when Israel, God's people, fell out of covenant with God. And so they would say, hey, you're oppressing the innocent. Uh, You're using unfair measures. Your lips, you honor him with your lips, but your hearts are far from him. It's time to come back home to the covenant. And so a prophet's oracle would be against people or against nations. But Habakkuk is interesting because his oracle isn't against his people. His oracle isn't against another nation. His oracle is directed at God, and it is written in the structure of lament. Now, last week we looked at lament. If you missed that, I would encourage you to go back and listen. This series, more than a lot I've done lately, holds together as one unit. So if you're missing them, I would go back online and be picking those up. But lament is a genre in scripture in which a person shares their experience of moving from secure orientation, where everything makes sense, to chaotic disorientation, where nothing makes sense, into reorientation, where with new information and new trust in God, they can move forward. What's interesting about laments is they always include a plea for help, they always include a complaint for God's absence, and they always, except for one, end in praise. They always end on a higher note, except for, as we said last week, Psalm 88, which ends with, darkness is my only friend because it was probably written by a 16-year-old girl after her boyfriend broke up with her. So Habakkuk's oracle functions as a lament. And in lament, this movement of orientation, disorientation, reorientation, it's aimed at helping us be honest with God. It is aimed at helping us wrestle out with God how we are actually experiencing emotions. If we don't have lament, we become voiceless. If we don't have lament, we start embracing and interacting with God on a fake way. If we don't have lament, we can never actually get to reorientation. 
And God's desire is for us to be able to embrace what's happening in our lives, uh, walk with him in it, and still live with the question. Now, Habakkuk has this motion. It has this motion of orientation, disorientation, reorientation. And chapters 1 and 2 of Habakkuk are a lot about that disorientation. You see the complaint and you see the plea that mark a lot of lament psalms and lament songs. And then in chapter 3, he moves to reorientation. And Habakkuk is fundamentally wrestling with two questions. He's wrestling with the question of unpunished wickedness. We understand that, unpunished wickedness. Um, we wrestle with, this, with unpunished wickedness when a murderer gets off of their charges scot-free. We wrestle with unpunished wickedness uh, when we hear of abuses and horrors and, and, and we don't ever feel like the punishment fits the crime. Habakkuk is also going to wrestle then with the problem of excessive punishment, which I'll get there. So if you've got your Bible, look at Habakkuk chapter 1 and look with me starting in verse 2 where Habakkuk says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. Now, now Habakkuk is seeing the wickedness in his own people. From the king all the way down to the lowest person, uh, what Habakkuk is seeing is violence. What Habakkuk is seeing is iniquity. That's another word for wrongdoing. He, and, and he sees destruction. He sees violence. And he says, and I have it underlined here, why do you idly look at wrong? It feels like something bad is happening, and God is just sitting back twiddling his thumbs. And if you have ever walked through a season of hardship, that is exactly how it feels. It feels like you are praying, and that all you have is a God who kind of just is sitting there watching. And I I like the language of verse 2. How long shall I cry for help and you not hear? How long will I cry violence and you not save? That how long is a key piece of lament. Another key piece of lament is this person, Habakkuk is feeling forgotten. Habakkuk feels like God has dropped the ball. Habakkuk feels like my wife feels when she's trying to talk to me and I'm also texting with somebody. No memory of any conversation we've ever had ever, right? I don't know if any other man is like that, but I cannot have a conversation and text with somebody at the same time. Um, and so I have to, like, discipline myself. Okay, anyway, we feel forgotten. Our question is like Habakkuk's. I see all of this wickedness in the world, and it seems like it goes unpunished. It gets to the heart of that question. How does a good and loving God, how does a just God, allow evil to exist? How does he allow such evil and hypocrisy to go unpunished? God's response, now, the way the book is structured Habakkuk offers a complaint, then the Lord answers, and the Lord's answer causes Habakkuk to have a second complaint. But his, the Lord's first answer is, hey, I'm not letting evil go unpunished. Look at verse 6. God says, behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. Behold is a word that means like, hey, look, pay attention. Behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. God's response is, hey, I see unpunished wickedness, and I'm going to respond by using the Chaldeans or the Babylonians as a tool to bring my people back to righteousness. Now, this creates another problem for Habakkuk. It's the meat of his second complaint, and it's that of all the nations of the world to bring, is, to bring Judah back into faithfulness, God has chosen the Babylonians. 
The Babylonians are still to this day one of the most evil and despicable nations on the earth. Babylonia in the book of Habakkuk is described as a fierce and impetuous nation marching throughout the earth to take possessions at will. Justice in Babylonian society had no external constraints. In other words, you made the call. It was up to you. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Their army is terrifying, led by swift, horse-drawn chariots that come for violence and destruction. No realm or fortification can stop them. The, the world power in the ancient Near East for a long time was the Assyrians, and God raises up the Babylonians and totally wipes out the, wipes the, the Assyrians out. Uh, Habakkuk is kind of prophesying at a time when the Babylonian Empire was rising in influence, and now God is saying, I'm going to punish the wickedness of my people by using an even more wicked nation to get my point across. And that's why Habakkuk's second question is excessive punishment. I mean, it's one thing for God to punish his people for their wickedness. It is another thing for him to use an even more wicked people to prove his point. And that's exactly what Habakkuk gets into in verse 13 of chapter 1. He says, You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? God, it's one thing for you to punish my people's wickedness. It is another thing for you to use an even more notoriously wicked, wicked nation to prove your point. I mean, God, it's one thing for my team to lose the Super Bowl. It is another thing for them to lose to the New England Patriots. It is another thing for them to be beat by the Cleveland Browns, right? I'm sorry. Um, I mean, depend, fill in the blank here. It is a struggle for Habakkuk to realize that God is going to respond to his chosen people's wickedness with even more foul evil. And so Habakkuk asks this question, how can you be silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? And after asking that second question, God doesn't respond right away. So beginning of Habakkuk, uh, he makes a complaint, the Lord answers. That answer causes Habakkuk to have another complaint in verses 12 through 17. And then in chapter 2, nothing. So Habakkuk says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. There is a kind of prayer where you do not move until God moves. There's this interesting tension in scripture where Jesus says, do not multiply words like the hypocrites do. But then he also tells a story of a woman who kept bugging an unjust judge, and the unjust judge heard her plea and responded, and if God is better than an unjust judge, how much more will he answer our prayer? There is a kind of contending prayer. There is a kind of prayer where, in the words of Jacob in Genesis 32, I will not let you go until you bless me. I am not going to move, Habakkuk says, from this one spot until you answer my questions. I'm not going to move until you show up in the way that I want you to show up. There is a prayer that contends with God to see his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It is not, I pray about it once, God didn't show up in the next five minutes, so I gave up and I flicked God off. It is, I have been waiting and waiting and waiting for God to move, and he finally did. We're going to see that in the book of 1 Samuel on Mother's Day, where here's a woman who is absolutely barren, 
who after years of infertility, the Lord remembers. There's a kind of contending with God. Habakkuk made a complaint in chapter 1. God answered right away. In Habakkuk 2, it takes God a while, and when he finally does answer, his promise running from about verse 2 through about verse 20 of chapter 2 is God reminding Habakkuk that he knows exactly what he's doing by picking the Babylonians. In fact, he promises that they will be destroyed in chapter 2, and this promise comes true in 539 BC when the Persian Empire rises up to wipe away the Babylonian Empire, which, by the way, then the Greek Empire will rise up to wipe away the Persian Empire, and then the Roman Empire will rise up and wipe away the the Greek Empire. Just as a side note to this, God will use nations and leaders for his purposes at his discretion and then drop them like it's hot and move on. God does not favor any one nation over any other other than his ethnic chosen people, Israel, which is not entirely represented by the Israel you see on a map today. Babylon is wiped from the face of the earth, but only after God uses the Babylonians to destroy the southern kingdom of Judah and cart its people off into exile in 586 BC. I promise you that most of the Bible does not require you to have a degree in ancient Near Eastern history. Uh, But sometimes that context helps us understand why they're saying what they're saying, especially in the prophets. So we've seen Habakkuk, he moves from orientation into disorientation in chapters 1 and 2, and then in chapter 3, he moves back to reorientation with this beautiful song. And and, and most scholars look at chapter 3, which ends with, by the way, to the choir master with a stringed instrument. Uh, Most scholars look at chapter 3 and have deduced that Habakkuk was an accompanist, an instrumentalist in the temple that he helped lead Israel's worship, and that in hearing psalm after psalm after psalm sung, he was able to compose this in a beautiful way. Now, the most poignant verses, I'd really encourage you to go home and read the book of Habakkuk, because first of all, you could go home, read three chapters, and be like, boom, one book down, 65 to go, right? Then you could read 2 John, 3 John, and Jude, and be like, four down, 62 to go, and then start Isaiah, that is 66 chapters long. Um, But I think the most poignant words here are certain verse 16, which verse 16 just kind of answers Habakkuk's complaint. He says, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. This is an interesting phrase. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. You see how Habakkuk expresses faith and trust in God's plan and purposes, right? Even if he doesn't fully understand. And then he goes on in verses 17 through 19, which like if you have your own Bible, like highlight this. It's a great passage. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herds in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. Even if things are bad, even if everything is totally obliterated, even if I am utterly destitute, Habakkuk says, I will rejoice in the Lord. This is Habakkuk's answer to the question of theodicy. Hey, Habakkuk, 
How can a good and loving and all-powerful and just God allow evil to exist in the world? Habakkuk says, though the fig tree should not blossom, and if the fields yield no fruit, I will rejoice in the Lord. Habakkuk, I don't think you heard my question. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why why would an all-loving and all-powerful God allow evil to exist in the world, Habakkuk? He says, though the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food, God, the Lord, is my strength. I went to Bible college. I wrote papers on this. If I had written that answer, I would have failed. But this is Habakkuk's answer. It is not an answer that feels satisfactory to a philosopher or to a theologian or to those of you with genuine skepticism about the way of Jesus. That, just, that sounds like a non-answer, right? It sounds like... <laughs> It, it, it sounds like that answer. It depends on what the meaning of the word is, is. It feels like an evasion. And yet, it also sounds a lot like the words that we prayed after every one of our three miscarriages. It feels a lot like the words of a faithful, Jesus-loving mom who has lost a child. It feels like the faithful, hopeful words of a father who watches his son be wheeled into surgery. It doesn't feel like an answer, but it is. It is the answer that Habakkuk comes through, and he doesn't come to it through theological reflection. There are no footnotes. He doesn't come to it by singing happy, happy songs until the bad feelings go away. Instead, he comes to this answer by wrestling with God. Habakkuk's name, Habakkuk's name comes from a word in Hebrew, which is the original language of the Old Testament, It's a word that means to embrace, but not as in the snuggly hug I give my son or the snuggly hug I give my wife. It is the hug, the embrace that you give your opponent in wrestling. I don't know if you've ever watched wrestling, competitive wrestling. Uh, It's often in the Olympics. It is tremendously uncomfortable to watch because they are all up in each other. You know what I'm saying? Their hands are touching places. Yeah, no thank you, right? Um, I like swimming. Do you know why I like swimming? There's a lane line over here, and there's a lane line over here, and you guys need to stay over there, right? You know, if you're running, maybe your sweaty elbow brushes the sweaty elbow of the person running next to you. But if you're wrestling, all sorts of sweaty things are brushing all sorts of other sweaty things in a way that is very uncomfortable to watch. And, and, And the reason I bring this up is... This is the kind of embrace that Habakkuk offers God. This is the kind of embrace that Habakkuk offers God. And as Habakkuk wrestles with God, as he wrestles with God's character, as he wrestles with God's promises in an evil and broken world, in a world that's not the way it's supposed to be, he comes to embrace God more deeply. And it leaves some questions unanswered, It leaves some doubts present. Every time I see bad news, every time you tell me bad news in your life, there's still a part of me that says, how can God let this happen? And yet for Habakkuk, there is this wrestling that leads to an embrace that makes Habakkuk say, God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on the high places. The answer to our doubts 
I hope we've made this clear in the series. The answer to our doubts isn't to ignore them, but to get up in God's face with them. And that's what lament teaches us to do. Lament teaches us how to wrestle with God so that we can more pro- profoundly embrace his character and his plan and his purpose. Habakkuk's name also means to cling to. To cling to as one would cling to somebody else when they were freezing to death. This is what happens in the midst of our suffering. When we wrestle it out, we come to embrace God and more deeply and more persistently cling to him. This is Habakkuk's answer to the question of theodicy. How can an all-loving, all-powerful God allow evil to exist? But there is one final place in Scripture... It's the ultimate place in Scripture that answers this question, and the answer to that question is found in the cross of Jesus. Jesus is the greater Habakkuk. Jesus is the second Habakkuk. And when I I make that move, I want you to pay attention to what I'm doing. All of the Old Testament, even though it was written before Jesus, points to him. And so as we read the Old Testament, we find these, these reverse echoes these echoes in reverse that open our eyes and create some expectation. And when we see who Jesus is, we can look back on the Old Testament and see that he plays in 10,000 places. And so there was Habakkuk, but Jesus comes to us as the greater Habakkuk who embraces our humanity to its fullest. Who embraces our humanity to its fullest to the extent that the author of the book of Hebrews says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted and as we are yet without sin. When the word became flesh and dwelt among us, in the words of John 1, we find that Jesus is tempted and tried just as we are, which is why Dorothy Sayer says, this is a quote I showed you at Christmas time, the incarnation means for us that for whatever reason God chose to let us fall, For whatever reason God chose to let us suffer, for whatever reason God chose to be subject to sorrows and death, he has nonetheless had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He himself has gone through the whole human experience from the trivial irritations of family life, can I get an amen, and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the, oh, there it is, to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, de- defeat, despair, and death. He was born in poverty and suffering infinite pain all for us. He thought it well worth his while. The incarnation is God taking his own medicine. The incarnation is God participating in this very question of suffering, this very question of, of, of how can a good and loving God allow evil to exist. Jesus, while being the son of man, is also the son of God. This mystery is profound, but it is one of the few things the Bible clearly says. The Bible clearly says that Jesus is both divine and fully human. Scripture says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is the greater Habakkuk who not only embraces our humanity, but wrestles, from the, wrestles us back from the powers of sin and death, 
who wrestles us back from the world and the flesh and the devil, who wrestles us back so that we could be with him. Colossians 2 makes it clear that Jesus has disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, canceling the record of debt that stood against us, and thus made us alive together with Jesus, having forgiven all of our trespasses. As Jesus hung on the cross on Good Friday, the text says that as he hung there, he who knew no sin was made sin for us. The text says in 2 Corinthians that he who knew no sin became sin for us. This means that in those final moments on Good Friday, as Jesus gasped for breath, all that is evil and wicked in the world rushed upon him. Every cancer, every school shooting, every Holocaust death, Every word of gossip, every lie, every click on a porn site, every prideful thought. This is the Bible's fundamental answer to the question of theodicy. This is not an academic question for God. It is an intensely personal conversation as Jesus, who is the exact imprint of God's nature, all-powerful, all-loving, entirely just, is put to death by the weight of our sin and our shame. The all-loving, all-powerful God on Good Friday is subdued by evil. And yet we know that the story doesn't end on Friday. Jesus, on Sunday morning, walks free of his grave so we can too. And now King Jesus rules at the right hand of God where he will one day judge the living and the dead. One day we will see Jesus face to face, and when we do, he will reach toward us with a hand that still bears scars. He is the lamb who is slain. Jesus is the greater Habakkuk. He embraces our humanity and wrestles us free from the powers of sin and death so that in clinging to him by faith, we have joy and hope and life even in the midst of unspeakable horror. It is in clinging to the lamb that was slain that we find our heart's desires met. It is in clinging to the lamb who was slain that we find the one who has for us words of life. Let's pray. Jesus, uh, you have the words of life. You alone have peered into the mystery of the universe and understood it. And you have given to us what we need to know for now. The secret things belong to God, but the revealed things belong to us and to our children. Thank you, Jesus, that you have revealed yourself to us. Thank you that you reveal yourself to us in the speaking of your word and the singing of songs in bread and cup that we might wrestle with you and embrace you, that we might cling to you in the midst of our pain. Jesus, I pray for my friends who right now are in the midst of a season of heartbreak, who are amidst the season of waiting, who are amidst in the season of uh, season of difficulty, that God, you would come to them and prove yourself worthy and prove yourself loving and prove yourself kind. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Julie is going to introduce a newish song to us. Is that right? Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. 
The flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. For God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's and makes me tread on high places. My friends, may you walk on high places this week. I love you so much. We'll see you next time.